This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. Welcome, everyone. Today, I have a little something different for Digging in the Dirt. Most of you who follow me know that I am a hardcore environmentalist. But something you may not know is I'm also a big science fiction reader. That is why I have author Ray Naylor here with me today. He has written the critically acclaimed novel, The Mountain in the Sea, that covers a lot of bases for me. The Mountain in the Sea was a finalist for the LA Times Book Awards, Ray Bradbury Prize, and the Nebula Awards. Welcome, Mr. Naylor. Hey, thank you for having me, Kevin. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. I want everybody to know that first that Ray has had an amazing career living all over the world as a Foreign Service officer. Before joining the Foreign Service, he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Turkmenistan and then worked overseas for several years in many, many countries, which included Vietnam. Ray currently serves as the International Advisor to the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries at the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. So, Ray, your book, The Mountain in the Sea, has been described as a first-rate speculative thriller by turns fascinating, brutal, powerful, and redemptive. The book poses profound questions about artificial and non-human intelligence, and it answers are tantalizing and provocative. I personally like this book a lot. It stayed with me for a long time, not only because it was about octopuses, which my wife and I are fascinated by, but in your book, a community of sentient octopuses has been discovered. In your book, it's off the island called Khan Dao, I believe it's Vietnam, and the octopuses have established a generational community in an offshore shipwreck where they have built a complex facility with a nursery for their young to play games and an altar for the bones of the human beings that they have killed. So when I first saw that there was a community of octopuses discovered off the coast of Australia, I had to write you and say, we have to talk, because now another story has come out that there's a nursery of more than 9,000 octopuses below the sea surface in the Dorado outcrop off the coast of Costa Rica. Was the octopus the jumping off point for your story when you started putting all these many layers that you have in this book together? Yeah, I think there were sort of two two jumping off points. They're a little bit uh, conjoined. One was just the idea of communication in general and and how it works between between species, even between people and one species. I, I having lived overseas for twenty years, I'm very experienced in miscommunication and all the things that can go wrong in translation and wrong culturally when you. Uh, don't understand the codes that you're dealing with and and that sort of thing. And and so I was I was sort of fascinated with these stories of first contact and how in so many of them, the contact I felt was a little bit too easy. Um, so I wanted to explore that a little bit more. And then I wanted to do it in a hard science, kind of hard biology sort of way. And so I wanted to pick a species that was uh, an offshoot of something on earth that already exists rather than having a species I could just make up wholesale. That would give me a challenge basically, because I would have to decide how they would communicate in some pretty real terms rather than just making things up as I went along. So that was kind of the two, the two conjoined ideas that were the base of the book. Yeah, because you do have a sentient being that's been created by a corporation and 
he's very very Evram. he's very interesting and then you have the discovery of the octopuses which have uh, a written language and so the uh, uh, cephalopod expert is brought in and then the interaction between them is pretty amazing so that that's what you're right when you're doing this this story you're talking about what constitutes language and meaning of self and and then interspecies communication that's really an amazing part of this book yeah i think for me the fascination has always been how we make ourselves understood and how we make ourselves kind of misunderstood i i've really encountered this in in peace corps I think a good example of how human communication can go wrong, really, something that that would happen in Peace Corps is, let's say, you know, you say to a Turkmen something like, oh, I don't really get along very well with my parents. Well, that might be a normal thing to say in the United States. And, you know, if you were saying that to someone that you that you knew, even if you didn't know them that well, I think that they would they would think that was within the range of of something uh, normal. And then they might ask you, you know, why or, or continue the conversation. If you said that to someone in Turkmenistan, they would immediately make a judgment about you. And that judgment would be that you were a terrible person, that you should not be talked to anymore because you don't understand the basics of family loyalties and human relationships and how they're structured. So you would fall immediately outside of their idea of what a decent person was. And that's just one example of many and how, you know, so much of communication relies on the hearer. And quite often, I think in the in the West, especially, we really think of communication as being something produced by the speaker. And that really is a huge mistake. And especially when, in cross-species communication, I think you run, run into that all the time, that the things that we intend to say to, to animals, even on a simple level, right, can be miscommunicated. Uh, you have to be very careful about the way that you communicate with dogs, right? Uh, cats, you have to alter your behavior in, in how you communicate with animals in the forest. The example which is given in the book of, of a shark and how a shark can misinterpret a human's behavior and that can lead them to attack them. These are all sort of examples of miscommunication. Right. And that's what Dr. Hao Nguyen, you're, you're the person who comes to, to figure out what's going on with these, what they believe to be sentient octopuses. She's grappling with that throughout the book about what how she can communicate to them and what do they really mean to, to say back to us right and what is really even the basis of their understanding of the world what are the kinds of things that we might have in common with them that we can even base communication on because of course i think i mean i think that so much i shouldn't say of course i, I think so much of of communication is based on mutual experience of the world in order to be understood we really have to find some kind of common ground and that's one of the reasons why, and even common sensory ground, I should say. So that's one of the reasons why it can be so difficult to communicate with people from other cultures sometimes is because you simply don't have the common ground of a, of a shared experience in, in some areas. And it, it can be there even with people who share the same culture as you. They just may not have the same background, the same experience, and the same you know, mutual understanding that you may assume they have as you as you start to speak. And yeah, I think that using that mirror of Evram as well and artificial intelligence uh, really was a way to further explore that idea of communication. Yeah, he's a cool character. I mean, really complex. Evram is genderless, an android, and he's possessed with perfect memory. In fact, the thing that stuck out to me was when when the Dr. Haas says, 
what's the difference between you and me? He has a really interesting answer. He okay. says, I don't forget. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think this is also, I mean, memory is another fascination of mine as a writer. And I've written about memory quite a bit in some of my other work and in some of my shorter work, uh, especially. I think that forgetting is a is a tool. It's really, it's not a it's not a bug of the human mind. It's really a feature. And forgetting and manipulating our own memories is part of the way that we tell ourselves stories about ourselves and uh, and where we are and where we're headed and where we've been. And I think in order for us to really function in the way that we do in our society, we have to be constantly forgetting and also constantly sort of manipulating our own memories. I mean, it's something that everybody is aware of that you know, when you don't remember things as they occurred, of course, in fact, you remember them in such a distorted way that you often remember yourself as if you were looking at yourself, which is a pretty clear indication that that memory is not happening the way that it was initially perceived. Yeah. And what's interesting about Evram, you have him created by a corporation. And in the book, it freaks out mankind, so to speak. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, the, and you have it so that they ban the manufacture of any more. Right. And, you know, I think, so this is, this is some, some, one of those things about the book that's been interesting for me just as a writer is when it came out in October of 2022 in hardback, a lot of the conversation around the book was really a conversation about the octopus and people were really fascinated by the, the octopus and that element of the book. And by the time it was about January, I think of 2023, there were reviews coming around that didn't even mention the octopus. <laughs> mountain in the sea that were all about AI and all about Evram. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that's just because we've been, we've been going through such an enormous cultural shift trying to deal with what is actually not artificial intelligence, what is very clearly machine learning and language models, but which is being called artificial intelligence by the public and called artificial, artificial intelligence also by a lot of its creators. I think to sort of drum up interest in it, but dealing with things like chat GPT and mid journey and, and this kind of thing. And that's really shifted the way that people talk about the book in a very interesting way. I think the first time it happened was there was a new scientist review that came out that literally did not mention the octopus one single time in a, in a that's long. amazing to me because to me, there's two stories going on here, right? Yeah, I mean, I, that was it was really interesting to me too. And it's been pretty consistently uh, the same since since about January of 2023, most of the conversation around the book has been a conversation around ideas of artificial intelligence and Evrim very quickly took the spotlight over the octopus. And so, yeah, it's been interesting to watch that shift. It's one of those indications of the way in which a book is not really a completed text in itself. It kind of has to fit somewhere, has to has a niche in society and it slots in there. And the niche, I think, of the mountain and the sea really changed um, soon after its publication. Right. You think it might be also due to the fact that when the book came out, the, the documentary, My Octopus Teacher, came out at the same time. And and then later, like you said, Chat GPT-3 came along and that changed the narrative. You think that's some of it? Yeah, that was interesting. So it wasn't even only My Octopus Teacher, although I think that was a major one. There were several different things about the octopus that came out almost at the same time. Um, none of us being aware of any of the other <laughs> ones working on things about, about the octopus, because the way, of course, that all of this works is that it's years before any of it becomes published. And so that was fascinating. I think it was a little bit like what William Gibson calls steam engine time, right, which is where really 
this steam engine was invented in hundreds of different places by hundreds of different people um, simply because all the things were there for the invention of the steam engine. And similarly, I think that our ideas in human culture about communication and consciousness and these kinds of things had been circulating for some time. And the octopus had been one of the sort of nexuses of fascination for us when it talked about, when we sort of talked about alien intelligence and all of a sudden all this stuff, including my octopus teacher sort of came out in the same year or two. What do you, just as an aside, what do you think about octopus? You, you know, you hear, oh, they're, they're an alien kind of uh, genetics makeup and they're very highly intelligent and do we eat them or not eat them? Well, where do you fall on all these things with the octopus? I mean, I think the octopus is a really interesting animal because this is an animal that has a nearest common ancestor with us. Our, our sort of last common ancestor is 500 million years ago which means that our last common ancestor is basically a flatworm with a really rudimentary uh, <laughs> apparatus for seeing. I mean, we're really, really like far back when we, when we sort of lose connection with one another. And then for 500 million years, you have these two very different evolutionary pathways going on. And one leads to mammals with this sort of top-down uh, spinal cord and and centralized brain and a certain way of being, you know, in the world, whether it's on land or in, in the ocean, in the case of whales and dolphins. And on the other extreme, you've got a mollusk evolving an increasingly complex brain, which is more distributed throughout its body and this very creative intelligence but also a very short lifespan and all of these other strange things happening. And the octopus, I think it's also worth remembering, is a very old species, older than the dinosaurs. And unlike us relative newcomers, it's been in a form that's pretty recognizable in the fossil record for a few hundred million years. And that's fascinating as well. Mm -hmm. This is a really, a really old animal. And, um, its way of viewing the world is so different from ours, but at the same time, I think we really recognize a kind of kinship in it. And you can, you can tell this because if you go to an aquarium, for example, very few of the animals have names, but the octopus always has a name. And the only other animals with names in an aquarium tend to be dolphins and maybe the otters. So we clearly feel that we have something in the octopus that is somehow close to us despite all this vast difference between us yeah my wife would agree with you we've given up eating octopus because of an experience we had at an aquarium in new jersey where they they had a you know, an octopus in the tank and he was given a jar with a fish in it and he just opened it up and ate the fish and then he came over to my wife who's she's a chiropractor so she, she has powerful hands and she put it up against the glass and the octopus came and, and interfaced with the glass and started turning bright colors just mm -hmm. rippling colors and that was it for eating octopus you just felt such a connection to that octopus <laughs> yeah that's uh i mean i think most people who've encountered the octopus either in the wild or in an aquarium have, have a similar feeling and uh you know it, it there is something startlingly um immediate about that connection that you get with them and that and that sort of moment of realizing that there is a mind uh, looking at you. And I think a, another really interesting thing about the octopus is that it has, despite the difference in our minds, 
developed this camera eye that is so similar to our own. So when you look into an octopus's eye, you're really seeing an eye that is very, very close to a human eye. Uh -huh. um, something that helps us to sort of bridge that intellectual gap between us. Hmm. So we're talking to Ray Naylor, who has written a book called The Mountain in the Sea. Uh, it's a terrific book. I really enjoyed it. And I got to ask you, is it going to have a sequel? So, yeah, I get asked this question quite a bit. I I don't know. I, it's not something that I've decided. I wrote the book so that it can stand on its own. I it do does. It does. Yeah, I think there's I think there's plenty left to explore in that world. But my short answer would be that in order for a book to have a sequel, I as a writer would have to be as interested in the sequel as I was in writing the original book. Well, I think we'd all want it. We'd all be interested because the characters are all still there. <laughs> Most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah. True, true. I think I think there's a lot of threads to to pick up on there for for, for certain, but you know the way that, that the publishing industry works is 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 interesting because I completed I mean the the, the timing of it so I completed the Mountain in the Sea back in uh, at the end of 2020 having started writing it in about the middle of 2019 got an agent well, was very lucky to get a, a great agent and then I started writing another book uh, which would become the Tusks of Extinction sometime in 2020. That book hasn't come out yet. I also I then started writing another novel about the same length as The Mountain in the Sea, and that book is now with my with my publisher. So I'm as a writer a couple of books out from this one already. Wow! And, and kind of thinking in other spaces. While the conversation is very much, of course, around The Mountain in the Sea, which just came out in paperback, it's not that I've moved past The Mountain in the Sea, but I'm also thinking about a lot of other things. So it's, that two to three year lag between producing something and then seeing it out there in print is, is an interesting one. Cause I've sort of, I've sort of thought, you know, I, I've got all these other worlds that I'm also living in. It's a little oh. bit like being a foreign service officer. In fact, because what happens when you're a foreign service officer is you're in the middle of a tour and you'll be somewhere like say in Kosovo and in the middle of your time in Kosovo, you find out where you're going next. And once you find out where you're going next, you start thinking about that place and we say that you're sort of always living with one foot where you are and one foot in the next place. So it's a little bit like that for me. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. You mentioned um, William Gibson, and I had thoughts about that, too, because William Gibson always had technology in his novels that was sort of incidental. In other words, it wasn't the the star of the show. It was like it, it just happened. You know, in your book, you have the same kind of stuff. Drones come and go. Hackers do. The corporation is trying all kinds of different things in artificial intelligence, and including the, probably the consummate one in this character, Evram. But you also have this other one, which I think could really come to fore pretty quickly, and that's the one where it's called Point Fives, the Holographic Companions. That that was very interesting. It was kind of disturbing to find out it was you know wasn't really a companion when you, when at some point in the story. And then you also have a cyborg like I hope I say it right, Al Ten Setseg, and uh -huh. that that's another type of intelligence. We have several different layers of different kinds of what would be considered AI or artificial intelligence. You want to touch on that a minute? Yeah, I think. Part of the way that I wanted to structure the book was uh, so that you got many different ideas about what intelligence is or could be like and what consciousness is and, and could be like. We, we as human beings, I think, sometimes 
we think of ourselves too much as being individuals. And what we're not really taking into account is the ways in which our intelligence is also about things like connectivity. You know, there's a certain way of being intelligent right now in the 21st century, for example, that is very different than the way being intelligent was even in, let's say, the 1990s, when I was taking a research course in university in which I was being taught to use resources in the library to do research, none of which are relevant anymore to how we learn about things. Those are all, you know, those databases are all gone, right. shifted to this completely different mode of, of knowledge and, and uh, a different mode of being connected to one another. You know, I still find myself, for example, more comfortable in, you know, certain um, interfaces than other ones, just because of the way that I learned to talk and be around people as I was growing up. And this is, you know, this has shifted the way that we're smart, I think, you know, there's a, there's a different uh, mode of being, of being intelligent that comes into the world when you can extend your perception out beyond your body in, in different ways. And that's kind of what Altan Setsek, uh, that character is about, is this idea of intelligence as being, you know, fundamentally a part of connectivity and control of, of things outside your own head. And when you look at science, a lot of science has been precisely this. It's been our ability to extend our sensory apparatus to enable us to perceive things that the human body really couldn't perceive before. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of wild stuff. I, I Don't you think we're going to see, we're going to have companions pretty quick that are going to help us with scheduling and, you know, knowing that something's happening that you're interested in and also working out problems. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, that's going to become, that's already probably become a part of uh, a lot of people's daily lives. Um, I think that, you know, but I think that what we should not make the mistake about is thinking that um, technology is just something as a, as a, a colleague of mine, um, Carolina B, he said, Technology is not just something that you plug in. Um, you know, there's all there's other elements of technology that we think about a lot less, like just the the technology of language and the way we talk about things. Right. Um, the invention of new words also means the invention of new ways of looking at the world, and uh, you know the the technologies of transportation to and from work, where we work from, how we work, those kinds of technologies. I think all of it is really shifting. Um, even the technology of like what having a job and not having a job means in this increasingly, you know, gig based uh, economy and not not all those changes are positive. In fact, a lot of them can be really exploitative and, and negative. But certainly for me, it's not just about the, the gadgetry. It's about the relationships that we have to the world and how the technological structures that we're kind of embedded in affect those relationships to the world and with one another. Yeah, you say, you know, not necessarily for the better, you know, it can be dangerous too, is the, the corporation in this novel, Dianimas, uh, they, they, they're the ones who have Evram, who is the, the best AI, I guess you could say, you know, the most complete. And, and then they also are developed, they want to know more about intelligence so they can have AI brained fishing boats, for instance, which, by the way, I found that a completely horrifying aspect of the novel. I mean, that 
somebody could be shanghaied into impressed into service on a boat or you it really becomes personal like you you can imagine yourself being like kidnapped and then put on a fishing boat that's run by an ai and you can't get off and it's pretty an interesting aspect of the story as well where the technology is used for worse yeah and i i think this is always the danger right um carl uh Virilio said um when you invent the ship you invent the shipwreck and that that's phrase, that idea was sort of central to, to my thinking, just as a science fiction writer in general. I always say that science fiction writers don't predict the future. We are not in the game of prediction. We're in the game of predication. We imagine different alternate histories of a future by sort of seeing what would occur in society and trying to play that out, you know, along with certain kinds of societal and technological change and some of these things are very negative but i would i would also caution people to when they're thinking that a lot of these things lie in the future the the ai slave ship the only science fiction element of that is the ai captain the right. rest of it is real you know tens of thousands of people right now have been press ganged into slavery on fishing vessels worldwide and uh, most of the material in that in echo's narrative on that slave ship, the sea wolf in the book is drawn from the testimony of people who've been enslaved on fishing vessels and managed to get out and survive the experience. Right. Um, and they really did kind of fall through a hole in the world where they were just kidnapped quite often or tricked and had their documents taken away from them and found themselves for years as a press ganged slave on, on one of these fishing vessels who could be killed if they disobeyed orders from their from their captain so it's it's both futuristic but also very now it is right and you know in your book it's transpired in the future that fully robotic vessels were too expensive human slaves are cheaper and more efficient to maintain that's basically what you come away from with with the book you know and which leads me to asking you about the oceans you know and this kind of ship which is scooping up all the fish all the time even though even if we have governments to ban all this kind of like massive fishing and and depletion of the oceans what, what's your take on what's happening with our oceans i mean there's always going to be poachers and criminal elements that are you know going to do what they want on the oceans do you think is that we're jeopardizing what's going on out there it's really difficult to govern the, the space of the ocean, of course, because the most of it is in a, a state of anarchy. And I mean that in the really technical sense, there's nobody in control of, uh, of most of the ocean. And it's just, it belongs sort of equally to everyone. And that's how international law has been structured for a very long time. Um, there are some emerging efforts uh, with the UN to, to control what happens on, you know, what's referred to as the high seas right? The, those ungoverned areas of ocean. But you're absolutely right. It's it's very, well, it's terrifying what happens actually on, on, on the high seas to, uh, to other animals because anything can be done to them and there's virtually no way to protect them. And our human impact on the global ocean, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's even a misnomer to refer to it as oceans, right? Because it's one large, totally connected body of water. So our impact on the global ocean is incredibly severe, some of it accidental, some of it the result of purposeful exploitation. But you know, just one example is 
the latest estimate I heard is that we kill 20,000 whales a year in ship strikes, just hitting them. Terrible. Right. Um, and on top of that massacre that's going on with whales, some of which are, are massively endangered species, as we all know, we kill 100 million sharks a year. Some of them as bycatch, some of them finned for shark fin soup, some of them, you know, hunted. There's really very little that can be done at this point in, in human history about what's being done out there in this ungoverned space. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, saw that the television show about green, the Greenpeace vessel trying to fight whalers in uh, around Antarctica and the Antarctic part of the ocean. Sure. It is kind of this ungovernable, ungoverned uh, territory. And what what's sad about it is that that doesn't mean freedom, right? What it really means is the opposite. It, it leaves it as this area for uh, humans to exploit both other humans and the environment without limits. And other species. That's right. In your book, you really tap into that. It, that maybe our greatest sin is that life only has meaning in our interconnectedness between humans, plants, and animals, and machines alike. But we're failing there in a large degree. Yeah, I, I think we really are. And I think, I mean, I think part of the reason for that failing is we just don't have a sense quite often of how connected we really are. I think this is changing. I do think that that human beings are in a different place than we were 50 years ago. I think that 50 years ago, for example, if you had said to people, we're all connected, they would have sort of looked at you and thought, oh, okay, well, you know, whatever, this guy's just a hippie or, you know, like it's, it, it just sounds very kind of woo woo and, and, and not very, not something to be taken seriously 50 years ago. And, uh, and cause that's about the time when we started to realize how connected we all were. And the people who had realized those things were still very much ahead of the curve. I think if you say we're all connected and everything has an impact on everything else, now in 2023 i feel like that sounds perfectly reasonable to a very large part of uh, of the population and that saying that is no longer um looked at as something crazy it's just looked at as something that's that's a fact we're all confronted with climate change we're all confronted at least even if you don't believe in climate change or don't believe it's a problem we're at least confronted with the damage that human beings are capable of doing to animal species and with, uh, you know, mass extinction and this sort of thing. So I think we're starting to really feel and realize that connectivity and maybe feeling and realizing it will puncture this kind of lie of individuality and get people to understand that while you may have rights as an individual, you don't have the right to just abuse the commons and destroy whatever you you want. You have to take into account the the rights of the other beings on this planet to thrive as well i think we'll leave it there ray uh, we've been talking to ray naylor author of the critically acclaimed the mountain in the sea great novel and re recommend you reading it it touches on all these things where you can tell we've been talking about a whole array of different things you really get into it and and it's also a great little thriller too so uh, and congratulations on writing it thank you kevin thanks so much for having me this has been a real pleasure yeah, it's my pleasure indeed You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 